Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy the sermon from lead pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Well, it's been a, uh, it's been a powerful morning of, of worship here in this place. It's been um, challenging. Uh, it's been some moments a, a bit overwhelming. Um, I uh, want to want to welcome you to the service at River Bluff today. If this is your first time joining us online, my name is Joe Still. I'm, I'm one of the pastors here and, uh, and grateful to be invited into your home this day. Um, I want to, before I begin the message, just uh, help us think about a few things. There's been beginning to be talk about, you know, things reopening. And some in our state have begun that, that journey of reopening. Um, there's also this idea of re-entry. What's, what is it going to be like to kind of re-enter society, re-enter our culture uh, in this time? But, but for the church, uh, I, I, want us to, I want us to start using, uh, especially for River Bluff Church, I want us to, to begin using and thinking uh, about the term re-emerging. Um, not, not just reopening, not just re-entering, not just things going back to the way they were, but to things re-emerging, to the church being something more because that's on God's heart. And we've been challenged as a church, the church around the world has been challenged in this time. What will, what will it look like to, to not be the church gathered as much as the church scattered? Uh, I don't know whether you can uh, see on my t-shirt, my wife surprised me with this t-shirt, uh, and it, it simply says that the, the church has, has left the building. And it's so true in so many ways. And that's, at first we think that's a, a horrible thing. Until we remember that our God is sovereign, and He's on His throne, and he's, he's doing a great work, I believe, in the church right now. Probably purifying us to be all that He wants us to be in the days ahead. So I, I just, I, I want to just stick that word reemerge in your, your minds and hearts as we kind of move forward in the days ahead. And actually this Wednesday night, we, we began an online uh, prayer service last week. We're going to continue it again this week. So uh, just keep your eyes open on Realm for an invitation into that, that Zoom online prayer meeting. It's going to be at 7 o'clock. And we're going to do things a little differently than we did last week. One of the, one of the big ideas that I want you to come to that prayer service with is this, having kind of asked the question, God, what are you saying to me in this time? What are you saying about my life? What are you saying about, about our church? God, God, what are you speaking over, over me? And, and Lord, wh- what should we do differently when we reemerge as the church? What should we begin even doing now where we live, work, and play in our neighborhood, God? What should we begin now? And one of the other pieces of this that I hope you'll uh, take advantage of or the opportunity, it'll be very helpful to the leadership here. We want to we know uh, what you're hearing about reemerging, what that would look like for River Bluff to do that in a way, obviously, that's going to be in keeping with um, the lead of those that are in authority over us uh, in government, but also what will it be specifically for River Bluff. And so we're going to try to put out an online survey this week uh, to, to kind of get some feedback from you about, about what you have imagined uh, that would look like um, in the days ahead. And again, it may be right around the corner. It may be months away. We, we don't know. Um, I'm hoping it'll be sooner rather than later like most of you. 
uh, but we want to do this with, with great wisdom, with, with great caution, as well as compassion uh, as we move forward. Now, uh, our message today is going to be coming out of the Christmas story. I know some of you are saying that was a weird video um, to do this time of year. And actually, you may be surprised to discover that it was filmed in the attic of this building. Um, we have this attic that we store stuff in, and um, some of our creatives, uh, Kim Blayton and Kyler Campbell, had this idea. So they set up this, this, uh, this Christmas moment, and uh, the boys were good enough to come in and, and share in that Scripture reading. And we're going to be using Matthew uh, chapter 2 today, but before we dive into the Scriptures, one of the things that will be true about, about this passage that I think is true in life, and I think we're really seeing it uh, kind of in a unique way these days, uh, we've been learning it, it more, is that things do not always go the way we expect. They don't always turn out like we had planned. I, I was talking with one of our praise singers about kind of her school and how it, it didn't quite turn out had she imagined it was going to this coming semester into the summer. And I remember that happened when uh, I, I was on a tour in the Holy Land uh, years ago. And uh, in fact, that reminds me, I'm really thinking about putting together uh, a tour for our church to, to maybe go one day uh, to the Holy Land, getting a, a group together to do that. And that was kind of chasing a rabbit. Sorry about that. But anyway, um, when I went to the Holy Land that time, uh, several churches kind of went in together. We did a combined trip. And one of those churches was First Baptist Church uh, of Charleston, South Carolina. It's a, it's a very prestigious church. Um, the, the pastor there uh, is Marshall Blake. Uh, Marshall um, is, a, is, a, is a Charleston boy raised up here. And Marshall, um, he, uh, he was recently our South Carolina Baptist Convention president. He, he's a, a very well-known, just a very thoughtful for pastor. And one of, one of the nights that we were staying in the Holy Land, we were uh, in a motel that was just a couple of blocks off of the, the Sea of Galilee. And it had been a wonderful day of hanging out around the sea and the reading of Scripture. We had taken a boat out uh, on the lake that day and uh, just really thought about where so much of Jesus' ministry, so many of the stories from the Gospels kind of happened right on that shore. It was just kind of awe-inspiring. Well, that evening, uh, Marshall came to me, I think right around dinner time, and said, hey, I, I want you to meet me downstairs at a certain time. I want, you to, to, I want us to go do something. And so I met Marshall down in the lobby of the motel at kind of the planned time. I get there, and he's got a bag. And in his bag is a cast net that he has purchased from one of the shops on the Sea of Galilee. It was kind of a popular thing to do. It was a handmade, it was just really, really cool Sea of Galilee net. And he had it in his mind. He had to cast it into the sea one time before he took it back and hung it on his wall in the office. And he wanted me to go with him. And I was honored to do so. And so me and Marshall go walking down, uh, leaving the motel, walk down to uh, near the sea. And Marshall's looking for the perfect spot. And uh, he finds this place kind of near the seawall, and he, he, because he's a Charleston boy, he's used cast nets probably much of his life. He, he, he cast it out there, a beautiful cast. He let it kind of settle for a second, and then he started to pull it back in. And I know you're thinking it was filled with fish. No, it, it wasn't filled with fish. Um, it snagged on the bottom. And so Marshall had this quandary. He starts trying to wiggle it to get it off, and it wouldn't come loose. And he lets some rope out and tries to get it at a different angle to try to pull it off that way, and it, it, it won't come undone. 
And, and all the while, Marshall's saying, I'm not going to tear this net. I paid too much for it. I'm not going to tear this net. I paid too much for it. And so anyway, Marshall uh, eventually decides, Joe, I'm stripping down to my boxers and I'm going in after my net. And so Marshall says, just hold this end of the rope. And, and Joe, you got you to gotta keep a watch for, for, for the military. Because the military in, in Israel, if you've ever been, are all over the place. They're walking around, you know, they're, they're, they're shoulder strapped with machine guns. It's just kind of intense uh, coming from America, seeing that for the first time. And um, so anyway, I'm, I'm watching out and I'm just thinking, oh my gosh. Here we are, these two Baptist boys from South Carolina, probably going to end up in the pokey, you know, before this whole evening happens. But eventually Marshall gets into the, the lake. He, he gets out. He gets his net undone. It comes back, and nobody, nobody sees us. Nobody, nobody finds us. And I get a really great, great story out of it. And, you know, and now Marshall's going to be embarrassed maybe once again. Who knows? Um, but it, it was just one of those things. You didn't expect it when you threw the net out. You expected a great, you know, story later on of, you know, when you went casting in the Sea of Galilee. Another uh, part of that journey that was not what, quite what I expected, um, we were going to spend some time in Bethlehem. And I had kind of imagined what, what it was going to be like and, you know, these incredible accounts of Scripture from, of Bethlehem and this, this little town, this place we, we celebrate, you know, at, at Christmas. It didn't go exactly as I expected. When we, when we got there to see this place where they believed the Lord was, was born, um, it wasn't what I had hoped. It was, a, it was a place really that was really ornate. And it was obviously a place of tension as so many different Christian denominations kind of tried to stake a special claim to part of that, that area. It wasn't that, you know, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see the lie. It was, it, it was anything but that. And it's a place that everybody who goes to the Holy Land needs to visit at least once. Um, uh, it, it wasn't that little backwood village that the prophet Micah, 700 years before the birth of Jesus, wrote about. And I want to share that with you from the Scripture. So if you have your Bibles uh, and you want to turn there, I'm going to read from Micah, the, second, the fifth chapter, um, and verse 2. And this is what the prophet Micah writes. He says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are little, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. And this is the word of the Lord. Now, uh, the, the story that the boys read to you from Matthew chapter 2, very familiar Christmas story, it had a portion of, of that passage from Micah in it. I, you probably didn't imagine. That was one of the things that was probably unexpected for you today, that you would be dealing with the, the Christmas story. Now, in the middle of the nine verses that they, they read for us, there's this partial quote of Micah 5.2. And, and in our series that we've entitled Beating the Odds that we're doing, we're looking at the context of some of the more than 300 ancient prophecies that were fulfilled uh, and have been spoken uh, about the, the life, death, uh, ministry, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, today, 
this important prediction from the prophet Micah is contextualized in what we know as the, the announcement, this account of Jesus' birth in Matthew. And there are two basic things right out of the gate that I walk away with that, that bring me joy and, 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 and deeply strengthen my trust in, in God and His Word. Now, if you printed out the notes, these two things aren't going to be in there. Um, but the first thing that kind of really gives me something here is understanding that nothing happens that hasn't already been anticipated by our sovereign God. No, nothing happens that God hasn't uh, anticipated and quite frankly, flat out is just in control of. Second thing that this does is it, it, it teaches me, it shows me that um, he's, he's working a plan, that he's arranging events to go the course that he wants them on, very often against every odd that could be imagined in the human mind. And I believe he does this to show, to show us his power, to show us that he does have a plan and that he is working his plan in spite of any odds that we might come up with in our little minds. Now, just those two truths alone are, are enough for me to just kind of walk away from, but there's so much more here that, that I want to walk into with you. Um, it, we're told in, in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, that was read earlier, it says, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now that, that, that word, those words wise men came from a, a translation of a Greek word magi. And uh, I don't know of any group, there are a lot of different groups represented in the Christmas story. I don't know of any group in the Christmas story that probably gets a, a, a more inaccuracies about them in our thinking than the Magi. And I, I, I lay that at the feet of a, a song that was written in 1857. It's a Christmas song. We, we sing it sometimes. You know, we three kings of Orient are bearing gifts. You know the rest of it? We traverse afar. Yeah, that, that, that one, you know. Uh, we, we have it in our minds, this, this imagery of, you know, these three kings coming from the oriental lands, bringing their gifts. And here's, there are a couple of things that are just wrong with that. First of all, they, they weren't kings. They, they were magi. They were spiritual advisors. They were actually king makers, not kings. Secondly, uh, there, there weren't three of them. We, that we just get that because of the, the three gifts that are mentioned, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, or as one child that I heard about say, um, thought it said gold, frankensteins, and smurfs. I don't know how he got that, but anyway. Scriptures don't say there was just three of them. In fact, uh, normally when a group like this moved, they, they traveled in a, in a huge entourage. Um, we just know about three of what may have been even more gifts. Now, this is one of the reasons why King Herod, that the Boyd family read to us about, um, why he, he was so upset. Uh, another reason is that they didn't really come from what we think of as the Orient, but probably more northeastern Iran. So here's, here's what I want to challenge you with. Here's an interactive kind of fun thing to do later today with, with today's message. I want to challenge you to try to rewrite that song to be more biblically accurate. So I started working on it and see if maybe you can make it better. We huge entourage of ancient northeastern Iran are bearing gifts we traverse afar. Any, okay, no, nobody, I don't think they're going to accept that into 
uh, the new way to sing this song. Anyway, historians tell us that the Magi, that the religion that was mostly practiced by them in that day was Zoroastrianism. And it's an ancient religion. Some of you have heard of it because it's still practiced um, in some places in our world today. Uh, the God that they worship, they worship one God. They're monotheistic. They worship one God who they name Ahura Mazda. Now, I know that sounds like to our ears maybe like, you know, a, a make of a, of a pickup truck or something like that. But you might be interesting to know there are some words that live and exist in our culture because of this word magi. We get the term magician comes from magi um, because their, their faith, their religion was considered to be a mystery religion. We also get the word magistrate from this because this religious group, they had, they had enormous kind of political clout. They, they had just an incredible um, influence in the culture that they, they lived in politically, and so they worked in the courts of kings. In fact, um, King Nebuchadnezzar uh, that we read about in the book of, of Daniel, the Magi were, were very, very prominent. They were some of the highest ranking officials in Babylon. Some of you will recall that, that story from uh, Daniel uh, chapter 2, uh, where Daniel has, the, the king has a dream, and it troubles him, and he wants, uh, he wants it interpreted. And, and basically, Daniel saves the lives of all the magi in, in Babylon at that time, because he's able to interpret the dream. And he's promoted to the kind of the head or the chief of all the wise men in Babylon. We read about that in verse 48 of chapter 2 of Daniel. It says, Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon uh, and chief perfect over all the wise men of, of, of that region. And so one of the things that I personally believe is the reason that these magi show up in our Christmas story, obviously is because God wanted them there, but I believe it was because of Daniel. I believe he planted in the minds of the Magi historically that there would be a king, not an ordinary king, but a, a, one who would be called king of the Jews who would be born uh, in, in Bethlehem. Why, why else would these guys care about some Jewish king unless, unless the prophet Daniel had really planted uh, this in, in their thinking and in their history? So I think it directly influenced uh, their coming. But the other element of the story is, is, is not so much uh, about the wise men. The other element is really about the prophecy that the Jewish leaders tell to Herod. Now, in this prophecy from Micah, we're going to unpack it in the context of, of Matthew chapter 2 because it's given, the, the words are spoken by the religious leaders of the day. And there are four details that are so important to understand about the anticipation of this long-awaited Messiah uh, that the Jews were awaiting. And so here's the first one. The first kind of point of this uh, this morning that I want you to pick up on is this. Is that the Messiah who would come would, would come to a defined place. It would be a very predetermined place. In verses 4 and 5 of Matthew chapter 2, uh, we read this. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he being uh, King Herod, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him this very defined place, this place defined by God. It says, in Bethlehem of Judea. 
for it is written by the prophet. Now, at, at this point, they've been quoting Micah chapter 5, uh, which we read. And they, they, they point to this specific prophecy to say that he's going to be born in this, in this place, this land of Bethlehem, in the land of Judea. Now, if you're, if you're kind of an astute observer of, of kind of the history of what's going on here, in, in a moment you may ask uh, the, the question, hey, a moment ago when we were reading from Matthew uh, in, in the land of Judea, it didn't say it quite that way, the way that it said it in Micah. Uh, remember, Micah says it this way, but you, O Bethlehem, and then what's the word next on the screen? Ephrata. But you, Bethlehem Ephrata, it's a, it's a hard word to say, but you, Bethlehem Ephrata, here's what that means. Why does Micah say it that way and the religious leaders say it, say it differently? Well, Ephrata was an uh, ancient term sometimes used for Bethlehem because it was the, the, the small village next to this little bit larger town, Bethlehem, called Ephrat. It's still there today. You can still go visit it. But in the old days, this particular Bethlehem was called Bethlehem of Ephrata. Um, and yes, it's, it is in the land of Judah. So when the, the scribes are describing it, they're, they're correct that it's Bethlehem in the land of Judah. But why so specific? Why, why did the prophecy have to be that specific? I don't know whether you know this, but there were actually two Bethlehems in that day. There were two Bethlehems. There was a northern Bethlehem that was actually near Nazareth. And then there was a southern Bethlehem that was actually near Jerusalem. And that southern Bethlehem is the one that's near Ephrata. So this was Bethlehem in the south, Bethlehem, Ephrata. And so this prophecy is being very specific. See, Messiah is not going to be born in, in whichever Bethlehem, you know, he happens to be born in. It's going to be the one in the south. And so whenever you want to discover the identity of Messiah, you have to begin with where he's born. Now, one of the things that's interesting is over, over the course of history, one of the things that we, we have seen is hundreds, maybe even thousands of people have, have claimed to be Messiah. People have showed up on the scene and they've just kinda, kind of claimed that they're, they're the Messiah. Now, if you ever have somebody walk up to you claiming to be the Messiah, one of the first things you should do after you introduce yourself and tell them where you're from is ask them where they're from. And when they say they're from Milwaukee, you can say, get out the door. You know, you're, you're, you're not Messiah because the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, Ephrata. Uh, uh, That's what the prophecy says. Now, the odds of that actually happening were actually astronomical. So when you fast forward 700 years and you come to Mary and Joseph in Nazareth, there's this huge problem because they don't live anywhere near the southern Bethlehem in Judea. They live way up north in this place called Nazareth. It's about 70 miles as the crow flies. Uh, based on the, the ancient roadways, it was about 90, 92 miles. So God has this problem, if you would. How is God going to get this couple living in Nazareth down to Bethlehem of Judea? Because it would be a whole lot easier just to go six miles uh, a little bit further north to Bethlehem uh, of the north. But the prophecy is specific. And so they, they, they've got to go. Well, fortunately for us, our God 
is the greatest of all chess players. He, he is able to just move the board any way that, that he wants to. And to God, there aren't kings and rooks and knights and queens and all of that. Everybody's kind of equal in the sight of God. Even if they call themselves a king, God has a plan for them. Proverbs chapter 21 tells us that the king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. I don't know if you've ever like taken a hose and turned it on full blast and then put your thumb over it and just kind of guide it the water when you, you know, you're spraying your kids or your parents or something like that. Um, that in the hand of God, kings are, 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 are just like that. And so well, here's what God's calling the shots. And what does God do? It's as if he steps into the throne room of the most powerful king on the planet, Caesar Augustus in Rome, and he plants a thought, a very unusual thought. And we know it's an unusual thing because it's recorded in Luke's account of the Christmas story. Luke chapter 2 says this, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria, and all, everyone, went to be registered each to his own town. So we have this law that's being given by Caesar in Rome that everybody has to go get registered. There's no exceptions. So now how do we solve this problem? How does God work this problem out? Well, this is about the only way you're ever going to get a, a, a woman pregnant in her nine month to take a hundred mile walk. God's got to do something drastic. It's got to be government-ordered, you know, no exceptions. Kind of like, you know, shelter-in-place has been in some places. Some places there's been no exception. You, you can't move, you know. So God's got to get her there in that condition, 100 miles. And it, maybe it was a donkey ride, you know. But, but she still had to travel this 100-mile mile distance. So Mary and Joseph went from the north to the south. Now, here's the grand truth in that for me. Caesar, he might have been ruling, but our God was overruling. He was overruling any and everything that Caesar did. He was working his plan. See, Caesar wasn't in charge. He thought he was. God, God was in charge. And this is one of those critical issues that we need to come to understand. And it's a critical issue um, as it relates to prophecy. It's this. Were these actually prophecies? There, there are some skeptics out there that, that will tell you that these prophecies, you know, they weren't actually written before the time of Jesus. There, there are skeptics out there that, that, that will tell you, you know, that, that these are supposed prophecies that they claim Jesus fulfilled, that they were somehow written after the fact. And the truth is, if you could discover that to be, to be true, then the Bible would be a fraudulent document. And it shouldn't be trusted if that's true. So there's some questions that intelligence-seeking people need to ask. The first one is this. Was there adequate time between the recording of the prophecies of the Old Testament and the recorded fulfillment of those prophecies in the New Testament? Was there, was there a big gap of time? The second question was, were the New Testament's accounts of Jesus accepted as being fulfilled prophecy by the Jews who were living in that time closest to these events? And you may be surprised to find out that the answers are yes and yes. You see, there was a 400-year gap between the final prophecies of the Old Testament and the birth of Jesus in the New Testament. A 400-year gap. 
And during that 400-year period, something very, very significant happened in Judaism. Their Bible was kind of finalized. They, they put together a list and said, this is, the, this is it. This is the final writing of Scripture for, for the Jewish faith. It got codified and systematized and, and finalized, and they were, ended up with these 39 books of, of the Jewish Bible. And it was just, that's, that's what they were. So by the time Jesus was born, the books that included all these predictions about Messiah were known and believed and trusted and thought to be holy scripture from God. Now, something else to add to that. We, in our generation, have the evidence of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Maybe you've heard about that discovery back in, in 1947. Uh, again, that was a really awesome part of the Holy Land tour was getting to go there. Anyway, these documents, they were written 200 years before Jesus was born. They're amazingly, they were preserved in these caves until 1947 when, when they were discovered. And they were dug out of the ground. And what was found is that they were so accurate, they had a, like a freeze frame of Judaism in that day, 200 years before Jesus. And it had all of the books of the Old Testament, including all of the books of the prophecies. And so that's how I'm able to confidently say yes and yes. History, critical history and, and critical archaeology is on the side of those yeses. Something else when we get to Matthew chapter 2, verses 4 through 5 is this. It's pretty obvious that the Jewish leaders expected that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem because Herod just kind of turns to them and says, hey, where's the Christ going to be born? And they just respond, Bethlehem of Judea, because that's what the prophet says. I mean, they, they reported that. You know, they, they had already understood this. They knew where he was going to be going, uh, born. And, and all of that to say it, it, was, it was an expectation. It was, a, uh, it was on their hearts that they would, he would be born in this very defined place, the place of the Messiah. Now, I want to do something a little different. Uh, and here's what I want to do. I, I, want to, I want you to take a moment. If you, if you printed out the worksheet, there are a couple of questions there that uh, let's, let's kind of think of them as journaling kinds of questions. And, and the first question is this. From, from this one point and, and the passages of Scripture that we've looked at, what, what would you say that you've learned about God? What, what, what is it specific that maybe you've learned about God that you could begin thinking about? You kind of heard God speak to your own heart. And then the next question that I want you to just kind of write down a brief answer. You can go back and go into more depth of these in a moment um, or later today. Uh, how, how would that change your life? Why would you need to live differently because God has shown you this truth? You take a moment and do that and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have some coffee. Okay, I want us to look at the, the next detail um, here in the prophecy. It, it, it's this, that Messiah would be born, uh, would be a distinct person, a very distinct person. Now, the question that Herod had asked the chief priests um, back in verse 4 of Matthew 2 was this. Herod inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And he refers to Jesus here. Jesus, uh, we know of as Christ. Now, I hate to break it 
to, to maybe some of you uh, out there, Christ is not his last name. I, I've run into some people that thought that that was his last name, but it's, that's just not the case. Christ is an, is an English word that comes from the Greek word Christos, which actually came from a Hebrew word that simply means the anointed one, Messiah, anointed one. Basically, in that day, if you had somebody who was becoming a priest or, uh, you know, a king in that day, you would designate them to their, to their chosen office. And in our day, what we do is like a, a swearing-in ceremony. You know, we, we swear people in to, to, to those positions. In their day, they had this ritual where this person would be taken, and in front of everyone, oil would be poured over them. And it was called an anointing. So you had these people in the Old Testament who were going to be a prophet, a priest, or king, and, and, and they would just be anointed. But the Old Testament, every time it pointed to Messiah, this deliverer, this one who would come, it was, a, it was this anointed one. Psalm 50, uh, 45 tells us this, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. This was a, a, a psalm uh, prophesying about the future Messiah, that, that you would be the Christ of God, the anointed one of God. That's why when Jesus goes into the synagogue in Nazareth and he's given the scroll to read, some of you will remember that story from Luke uh, chapter 4. Starting in verse 7, or, uh, verse 17, it tells us that Jesus stands up and he reads the scroll of Isaiah. And we know that he was reading from the 61st chapter what we know as, as that, that book, and it's a very, very familiar text. It's known, it would have been known to the Jews in that day um, instantly as about the coming Messiah. Uh, Jesus read these words, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And the, the Bible goes on to tell us that he closed the scroll, he put it down, and he said to the audience, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, if you read a little bit further, verse 28 tells us that the people in the synagogue that day got violently angry. They, so angry that they took up stones. They, they kind of drove Jesus out to the edge of a town to, the, to, to a cliff. They, they were going to stone him to death. They were going to kill him because they knew in that moment that Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah. Sometime later in his life and ministry, Jesus is with his disciples and Matthew 16 records this. He, he, he asked one question to start with. He says, who do, who, who do men say that I am? And then there was a second and more probing question that he asked. Who do you say that I am? And one of the apostles, Peter, says, you're, you're the Christ. You're, you're the son of, of the living God. You're, you're that one. You're the anointed deliverer that the Old Testament keeps pointing to. Now, so woven throughout Hebrew Scripture, you have predictions about the birth and uh, the lineage uh, and the mission of the Messiah. And since, since those things were written long before it was to take place, for nearly 2,500 years since then, rabbis have commented extensively on those Scriptures, um, including this one from Micah chapter 5. And it, it was said to, that the common Jewish belief was that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem, that he would be born there. And not, not just that, we, we read about in, in Matthew 2, but in other places. For instance, um, in the New Testament, in John chapter 7, verse 40, the crowd is, is discussing who, who this Jesus is, and they're kind of asking, could he, could he really be the Messiah? You know, is, is, this, is this the one? And now I'm, I'm quoting from John chapter 7. They say this, is this the Christ to come from Galilee? 
Is that where he's to come from? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ, excuse me for just a moment, Uh, is, is not the Christ to come from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? See, their traditions, their interpretations, along with the Scripture, told them that Messiah was coming from Bethlehem and that he will be a deliverer. That's what he'll do. Now, there's some words that if you've been hanging out in a church very long, um, or studying the Scriptures very long, you've probably heard some other words about some, uh, some works that are kind of considered interpretations of Scripture, of, of Jewish Scripture, like the Mishnah or the Talmud or um, the, the Targums. And these are, these are writings by uh, these, these Jewish kind of scribes and uh, interpreting what the Old Testament Scriptures say. Some of them are, are paraphrases. And somebody might say, well, why are they... Why are they important to us? Well, they help us understand Jewish thought about the Old Testament. And so I want to give you an example. This is from the Targums. It was written by uh, Rabbi Eliezer. And, I'm, and, and what he's doing is he's paraphrasing, interpreting, if you would, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Um, I don't know how many of you have ever read the, the, the message by Eugene Peterson. It's a paraphrase, uh, his paraphrase of the Bible. Well, that's what Rabbi Eliezer is doing here. He's paraphrasing uh, math, uh, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. He says this, And you, O Beth, Bethlehem Ephrata, you were too small to be numbered among the thousands of Judah. From you shall come forth before me the Messiah to exercise dominion over Israel. He whose name was mentioned before, from the days of creation. Now, there are two things in this interpretation that are important to understand about the Jewish mind. They expected the Messiah to rule, to be a deliverer. They expected him to come from the line of David. They expected he would be born in Bethlehem. And so, not only was there this defined place, but there was this very, very distinct person and role that he was to play when he came as Messiah. Now, before we move on, to the next point, I want you to, again, pause and, and think. Uh, maybe those same two questions. What, what do you learn about God from, from coming to understand that not only did he, he pick a distinct place, a defined place, he, he had a distinct, a very distinct person in mind and what his role was going to be. And if that's true, if you come to believe that is true, what difference will it make in the way you live your life next? I'm going to have some more coffee. You may just need to write some key words down so you can go back and unpack it more fully later. All right. Third detail that I, wanna, I want you to, to see with me is this. The Messiah would be or would have a determined purpose. 
he would have a determined purpose. Um, I hope you notice uh, that the Magi in Matthew chapter 2, that when they came, they, they asked this question, where is he? If you go back and look at verse 2, it says, where is he who has been born the what? The king of the Jews. They, they didn't say born the Christ. They didn't say born the Messiah. Where is he who's been born the king of the Jews? Now, I, I just want to go on record saying, um, if I had been there with the Magi, I, I would have said, dudes, a wrong question with Herod in the room. You, you don't want to ask that question. I mean, it was the right question, but you don't want to ask it with Herod in the room. Because as soon as Herod heard that phrase, they had his full attention. You could almost see Herod's head spinning around. You know, this, you know, kind of like, say what? Did you just say, where's the king? Don't you know who you're talking? I mean, you could just kind of see it. Now, that, that phrase, the king of the Jews, in that day was a very politically charged statement. I mean, first of all, think of this. Who was, who was the ruler of the world at that time? It was the Roman Caesar. That, that's who it was. And, and, and Caesar thinks, he thinks he is the ultimate king, that he's the big dog. To say that there was another king anywhere would be a direct competition of, of Caesar. But Herod had actually been given this title by the Roman Senate and by Caesar himself, Caesar Augustus. And the title that had been bestowed upon Herod was king of the Jews. He, he was given this. Caesar basically said, hey, I'm going to let you, I like you so much. I'm going to let you just kind of rule this little backwoods area of my, my kingdom, my empire. I'm, I'm going to let you, I'm going to let you call yourself king. I just like you so much. You just, I'm going to let you call yourself king. And so now here, here's these, these kind of astronomers from, from northern Iran show up. These kingmakers, remember, from, from the Babylonian area uh, coming from a king's court most likely. And they're coming and saying, where can we find the king of the Jews? What did they say they wanted to do when they found him? We want to worship him. We, we want to worship him. Now, if you don't already know this about Herod, history tells us, and, and it's a gory detail, but I'll just give you some highlights. He, he, was, he was paranoid, and he was a homicidal killer. That, that's what King Herod was like. He killed one of his wives and two of his sons and lots of other people because he was so paranoid that people were going to try to steal his throne away from him. In fact... The Roman Caesar, Caesar Augustus said, this was a quote um, from Caesar Augustus. He says, it's safer to be Herod's pig than his son. That's how loony this guy was. So you, you have all this working together. Herod, Herod panics, but he doesn't want to lose control. And so he, he sends the Magi to Bethlehem. And many of you know the rest of the story. How Herod eventually, after the Magi sneak off and don't go back and report to him, Herod goes into Bethlehem and, and kills all of the male children under a certain age. Now the Christ had been prophesied, the, the, the anointed one, the Messiah, that he would be king over the world. He would be king of the Jews. He would become king, king of the Gentiles. But you'll also notice that it says something else that in this prophecy. For from you shall come a ruler... And I love this. I love this. Who will shepherd my people Israel. See, Jesus is coming back, the scriptures tell us. 
And yes, he's going to rule and reign because, because God has said so. He's going to rule over the world as predicted by the prophets. But his rule is going to be a gentle rule. His rule is going to be as a shepherd. One of the ancient Jewish kings, King David, was writing prophetically in Psalm 23 about that, that shepherding. He says this, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. When Jesus was here among us, Jesus says about himself in John chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. And then he goes on to say, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That was when Jesus came the first time. Jesus came the first time to be this Savior who would lay down his life. But when he returns, he's coming back as that sovereign king. He will rule the world. He'll rule it in gentleness. Now, before we move on to the last point and conclude our message for today, I want you to stop and kind of ask yourself, what do I know about God from this? What do I learn about God from just this point, thinking about what, what, what Messiah, what the Savior is like, that he would be a Savior, and that he's gentle. What does that mean for me? What do I, what do I believe about God because of that, and, and how can I live my life differently with this, with this new belief about God? Take a moment and just kind of make some notes about that that you could go back and unpack later. Okay, here's kind of the final point that I want us to step into today and, and think about. There's a fourth detail that Micah gave in his prophecy that the religious leaders, when they were quoting it, left out. They would have not got their Awana's merit badge that day um, because they, they didn't quote the whole scripture. And, and it points to this, this last point is this, is that the Messiah would be divinely pre-existent. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 6, the rulers, the religious leaders of that day, they, they quoted Micah, they said, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And again, it's, it's a, great, a great quote, but it's, it's not fully accurate. They left off the most important part, I think. Because in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, Micah said this, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrata, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be rule of Israel. Now watch this. Whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. I love the way the uh, New American Standard Version translates that last part. It says, His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Now, if you were to speak to an Orthodox Jewish person today, if they are one who believes that a Messiah is yet to come and they're looking for this Messiah, they will most likely tell you that he is simply going to be a man. 
a human being. He's not going to be God. He's not going to be like the Son of God. Most will say that when the Jewish, the Jewish Messiah comes, he's, he's going to be a human being, will have a human personality. He'll have a great intellect, of course. He'll uh, have love for the Torah, the, their scriptures, but that's all. He's just going to be a, a, a man. But here's, here's what you need to know, um, and many of them probably don't know. That is not the way Judaism has always looked at their Messiah historically. That's not what Judaism has always believed and, and thought. And there's tons of evidence from Jewish scholarship to so, show that originally Judaism believed that there was going to be this Messiah and he was going to be eternally existent, who would have a miraculous birth, a miraculous mission and destiny. Now, what I want to do is I, I, I want to give you a quote that's going to come up on your screen. It's from this book that I've had in my library uh, for as long, about as long as I can remember. It's one of the first books that, that I purchased when I started studying this stuff. Uh, I think I did get it my freshman year at College of Charleston. It's called The Life and Times of Jesus Messiah, and it's by uh, Alfred Erdesham. And he is a Jewish scholar who came to Jesus and came to Christ personally. And he researched things like the, the, the Talmud and the Mishnah and, and the Targums and all that stuff that was going on. And uh, I, I want to I read to you uh, from his book uh, just, just a quote about this idea of the pre-existing eternal uh, nature of Messiah. He writes this, he says, even in strictly rabbinic documents, the premundane, and the premundane, what that means is, is before the beginning, the premundane, if not the eternal existence of the Messiah, appears as a matter of common belief. Such is the view expressed in the Targum on Isaiah 9 6 and that on Micah 5 2. But the Midrash in Proverbs 8, 9 especially mentioned the Messiah among the seven things created before the world. The name of Messiah is still said to have been created before the world. Now, what they're, what they're saying, what he is saying here, is that in Judaism, ancient Judaism, they believed that Messiah, the coming Messiah, would be as God. He, he would have come from God. And it's interesting to me that that's how the Gospel of John starts. If you remember kind of how the, the, when Jesus came on the scene, John writes about his coming. John writes these words, uh, the opening of his Gospel. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that, that was made. See, that, that, was, that was John's writing. John the Baptist, who was Jesus' older cousin, when he spoke of his younger cousin, Jesus, he said this. It's recorded in John chapter 1, verse 15. John testified about Jesus when he shouted to the crowds, This is the one I was talking about when I said, Someone is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. It was a bold statement. This is what Paul was addressing in Colossians chapter 1 when he said this. He said, he is the image of the invisible God. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. And all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. What, what this means is Jesus is the only person who, who, was, who ever lived before he was born. You need to get your head around that. The only person who ever existed 
before he was born. He was pre-existent. The Jews of his day believed that to be true. And that's one of the most important parts that was left out of of Matthew's account. When, When Herod asked for this answer, where was Messiah going to be born? The religious scribes and the, the, the religious people, the most religious people of the day, they knew it. They, they, I mean, they quoted it. They, they just spit it out. They didn't have to go to their computer and look it up or their, their smartphone or their Bible or anything like that. They knew this. But here's something that fascinates me. We don't see where any of them took the little short five-mile walk to see if it was true. They they didn't investigate this thing that their whole faith centered around. Here we have travelers from from the far east who sacrificed all kinds. They sacrificed wealth to to pay for this journey. They literally risked life and limb traveling hundreds of miles from their country. Show up here looking for this king of a completely different country. And these religious leaders didn't have enough gumption to get off their posteriors to go see, had this really happened? Because remember, Bethlehem is just on the outskirts of Jerusalem. It literally is kind of over a hill and around the curve. It's just not that far. And, and if they believed this, why, why wouldn't they go? I mean, just take the little walk. Just say, hey, hon, there's rumors going on in Bethlehem. I'm going to go check them out, you know? But they didn't. Here's what's true about them that's so true about so many of us in our day. Some people are so inoculated with religion that it keeps them immune from truth. I got just enough religion that I'm satisfied with it right now. You know, I go to church, I do the hymns, I read the Bibles, I do all this stuff. But I never dig in for myself. I just, I kind of feel smug about it. They have just enough religion to really keep them from being deeply affected by the truth. Now, I can't really completely speak for everybody else. Probably a lot of people might think that this study that I'm walking us through, you know, might be boring to some. I just want to say again, man, this fires me up. This, this is one of those things I told you last week that it, it, this satisfied my mind search when I was a freshman in college that God would beat all these odds of all these things happening so that these wise men, that they would show up and worship Jesus. And I really think that's probably the thing that made them most wise. See, foolish people, they'll hear rumors about things they believe in deeply, but they won't personally dig deep enough to see if it's really true and true enough to change their lives. Wise people take a journey. And that journey will always lead them to the Christ, to the Messiah, to to Jesus. Now, before I pray... I want to give you just another moment to just maybe record something that maybe this causes you to believe about God, to trust in God for, and maybe a way that it may help you live differently in the days ahead. Just take a moment and do that.
about prayer with me, if you would. Just ask yourself the question right where you're at. Do, do you believe? Not, not looking around at other members of your family or what they're doing, but do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah of God? Do you believe that he's the Messiah of God come as Savior of the world to free, to free you, to free the world from enslavement to sin, to free us from the fear and penalty of death? Do you believe? The Bible says if you put your trust in him, you can be saved. You call on the name of Jesus with a heart that believes and trusts. You repent of trusting in yourself or trusting in something else. You turn away from your sin, which is really putting your trust in something else. You turn away from that and turn to Jesus. The Bible says you'll be saved. You know, I imagine that most of those watching right now believe in Jesus. And maybe today the question is, do I believe Jesus? Do I believe when he calls me out and says, I, it's my plan for the church to be out of the building to be in the world, to be making a difference, to love your neighbor right now like you've never had a chance to, to do before? Do you believe me? Do you trust me? Not believe facts, do you trust what I say? And are you doing it in the way you're living your life? So Lord, we come right now. We come, we come closing our time here in this moment. We come, God, once again, choosing to believe whatever it is we need to believe about you. We want to come trusting you, trusting in you and trusting your word as being true for our lives and making a difference. Lord, we believe. We come bringing our lives to you now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're in North Charleston this Sunday, please consider visiting us at our 9 o'clock or 1130 services. We'd love to see you. Again, for more information, visit riverbluff.org. Now go change the world.